This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. As such, the church is heavenly-minded and has an inheritance in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and resurrection life is at work in them. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dalzell. James, good to see you. Good to be here and very excited about our guest today. Yes, I am too. We are privileged to have Dr. Lane Tipton join us today. Dr. Tipton's uh, position is Fellow of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Reformed Forum. He taught for many, many years at Westminster Seminary. He also in addition to his work with Reform Forum, is also pastor of uh, Trinity OPC Church in Easton, Pennsylvania. So, Lane, hey, thank you, my friend, for joining us today. Oh, thank you both for having me on. This is a peculiar delight for me, so I, I, I look forward to it. We wanted to talk with you today about a project that Reformed Forum has been working on. It's entitled The Foundations of Covenant Theology. It's a video series, and it's a very... Uh, professionally done video series in which you are the featured teacher, the featured instructor. And so uh, I, I wonder, Lane, if you could just, in a broad overview, give us a sense of what this series is about. It's suitable for Sunday schools and, and private study and that kind of thing, but what's what's it about, Foundations of Covenant Theology? Well, another way to put it is it's about the history of heaven. And a lot of the series is focused on Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-2 with this in view, that in the absolute beginning, when God created the heavens, the, that heavens in Genesis 1-1 refers to a presently unseen created realm that is likened to a temple dwelling of God. And in the absolute beginning, God created a temple realm in heaven, distinct from earth, populated it with the angels who worshiped him. And then in six days, created the visible heavens and earth. And on day seven, entered into that heavenly temple where he sits enthroned as the triune creator king, surrounded by the angels who worship him. So that the point there is that there's an historical movement from creating a temple in heaven in Genesis 1-1, and then after the creation week, being enthroned forever in that temple as the Sabbath-resting God. And the thing that we're trying to do in the series is ask this question, how does that primal history, that creation of a heavenly temple filled with the glory of God and angels, how does that provide a foundational interpretive lens for understanding Adam in the covenant of works in Eden? So that's kind of the frame of reference by which we're approaching this. So the foundational consideration for covenant theology here is the priority of the history of heaven and the centrality of Sabbath rest, worshiping God in a heavenly temple, resting from works as the goal of the covenant of works. So good. that's your setup. That's the, yeah. that's the aim of the video series and what you develop. What is the relationship then? of earth to heaven. We might think to ourselves, but there's heaven. There are the angels. Um, isn't it sort of degrading to, as it were, uh, come down to create a terrestrial counterpart to all of that? What is the, what is the goal and the purpose of this sub-celestial 
extraterrestrial uh, realm that he creates. What is the intended relationship of that to heaven? Well, it likewise, Genesis 2.15 through 17 starts to bring this out where Adam is called to guard Shamar, guard the temple realm in Eden. Eden is an earthly temple dwelling of God that provides the provisional place of probation testing for Adam under the covenant of works. And if he passes probation, destroys the serpent, reaches out his hand and eats from the tree of life, his impermanent provisional temporary fellowship with God on earth will be advanced not only forward, but upward as he enters into heaven and is exalted above the angels in the worship and fellowship of God, fellowship with God, worship of God. And so this, the history of heaven is a prior history that shapes and underlies and ultimately informs the telos for obedient Adam under the covenant of works. There's a heaven-centeredness to what he's doing even when he is on earth. So is, is Adam, you know, someone might object, but Adam was created perfect. Adam was home. Adam, Adam didn't need to attain anything. He just needed to preserve the good he had. And what you're saying is that heaven is in fact a goal, even for Adam prior to the fall. Yeah. Think of it this way to pick up on your language uh, in the question. Adam is very good. Genesis one thirty one, but he is not yet confirmed in that goodness. He is not yet advanced beyond the very good to the very best. It's losable. It's a mutable, losable relation he has in Eden. And the clearest sign of that is that there's a tree in Eden, tree of knowledge of good and evil, that casts the shadow of threatened death upon him for disobedience, disloyalty to God under covenant. And as long as he is in that place, it is as though he is in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is threatened against him. But once he passes probation, destroys the work of the devil in obedience to God, crushes him underfoot, as it were, Hmm. it is then that he would eat from the tree of life. And the life that he had provisional and mutable on earth would be translated into an everlasting unlosable life with God, understood in fellowship of, with God and worship of God as he ascends or is translated into the estate of glory in heaven, in heavenly Sabbath rest. So this is something that helps, I hope, ordinary readers move beyond the ideas of Eden as the ultimate and final dwelling place of God into a full-orbed biblical understanding of the provisional character of probation on earth in Eden and the terminal climactic character of heaven, which is where God's presence is made known in its fullness. Um, you can, in other words, before there was ever an earthly temple, Eden, the tabernacle, the first or second temple, there is created by God a heavenly temple, which is the sanctified place for consummate fellowship with God. And Adam was aimed toward that consummate fellowship from the beginning in Eden. And Eden was a means to an end of advancing to that glorious place. I think I remember reading in Meredith Klein somewhere, and if I, if I butcher this, you'll correct me, I know. But he said something about Adam's goal being the 
the foreclosure of the distance between heaven and earth. Yes. A, a sort of movement of a yet uncultivated, yet um, unpopulated earth, merging it into a, a kind of single order of, of blessing and, and beatific presence uh, with heaven. Yes, you, you could think of it this way, that in Colossians 1.16, the eternal son is the one by whom all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things invisible and visible. The invisible corresponds to heaven. The visible corresponds to the earth. And what Klein is getting at is that the fruition of the covenant of works is a movement not only forward beyond Eden, but think of it as when Adam passes probation, that boundary that presently veils the glory of heaven will be opened so that the one on earth can see the fullness of the glory above in heavenly places and be translated into that presently veiled glory dimension, to use Klein's language. And so it's, it's not so much that heaven is so far away from the earth, but that its presence is veiled to the sight of Adam until that time that he passes probation and advances his estate from an estate of innocency, probation testing in Eden, to an estate of glory, Sabbath resting in heaven. So in your, in your discussion, you're setting up a trajectory for Adam in his place of probation and testing, you're describing the goal of humanity. Uh, and I, uh, am I right to assume that you're also discussing in the video series the failure of attainment? Do you get into some discussion of the fall as well? Yes, and it sets it up for this just in a thumbnail sketch that what Adam forfeits under the covenant of works becomes the historical mechanism by which God enters into a second covenant. And that second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, brings into view the redemptive work of Christ, which is not necessary, of course, prior to the fall. Right. And in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.20 and 21 and Genesis 3.23, most basically, the, the promised Messiah will ascend the mountain in Eden, will destroy the work of the devil, will clothe his people in his own image endowment, the animal sacrifices bring that and atonement into view, will pass under the flaming sword of divine justice, barring entrance back into Eden. And he himself, through his suffering, the fruition of that suffering will be ascension into the heaven temple. And so when you think about the outcome of Jesus' death on the cross in his resurrection and ascension, he ascends, 1 Corinthians 15, 47, to become the man of heaven. Or in the language of Acts 2, 32 and 33, he ascends and sits at the right hand of God, having received the Spirit, and then pours the Spirit out upon the church. And in his resurrection and ascension, he advances the history of heaven to its omega point. He passes the probation Adam should have. He personally enters into heaven. He personally sits and intercedes at God's right hand until such time that he brings his church to see his glory in the heavenly temple. And the, the series that we did at Wimberley is just a, 
an embryonic look at that. And I'm writing a book right now that we're trying to get finished called The History of Heaven that gives you a bit of a wider angle lens and helps you see the congruity between Genesis 1 uh, through 2.2 and Paul's interpretation of the significance of Adam and Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. I love this, Lane, because I'm thinking you don't, you don't understand the work of Christ if you don't understand those opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, and maybe, in, maybe inversely, too, you don't understand as clearly the opening chapters of Genesis unless you see the antitypical success of the second Adam. Right. There, there are two and only two figures who could advance the history of earth to the consummation point in the history of heaven, where God is enthroned in Sabbath. And they're rest. both named Adam? They're both named Adam. Okay. One failed, the other has gloriously prevailed, and the presupposition behind the, the deepest foundations for the eschatology of the covenant of works and grace, the deepest historical presupposition for that is the creation of heaven as a presently veiled, glorious temple dwelling of God, which is the habitation that he has prepared, the inheritance he has laid up for his people in now the ascended Messiah. Lane, you, you talked about the Apostle Paul's um, use of this and explanation of the covenant of works and of the significance of mm -hmm. Adam. What kinds of implications do we see drawn out of this in the New Testament for the life of the believer? So it helps situate mm -hmm. us. It helps us understand more profoundly what was happening in Christ's own life and death, resurrection and ascension. Yes. But what implications then are drawn for our lives as Christians and our understanding of our lives as Christians? Brother, that's a, another wonderful question. Um, here's the answer. Uh, first and foremost, this teaching helps you recognize in the language of Paul throughout his corpus that you are heirs of heaven as you are heirs of God in Jesus Christ. The church is a pilgrim people. The earth in its present form as it's passing away is not the permanent dwelling place of the church heaven is, uh, where Christ is, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, seated at the right hand of God. But that means that as Christ has been raised, as he has poured out the Spirit and joined the church to himself by the Spirit, as such, the church is heavenly minded and has an inheritance in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and resurrection life is at work in them. But the key that you've got to start to appreciate is that the mode by which resurrection life is made known to the church is in a mode of a dying with Christ and a fellowship of suffering with him. Colossians 3.10, 2 Corinthians 4.10, bring this out. And it's simply this, those who are heirs of heaven are those who have been crucified with Christ, died to making the world and all that is in it ultimate, have taken up a cross and seek to suffer all forms of reproach and misunderstanding and persecution and tribulation and hardship, not with bitter souls, but with joy because as they embraced the cross and suffering of Christ at work in that suffering and foundational to it is life that hides you 
with Christ in heaven, Colossians 3, 3. So that when he's a, when he appears, as you have suffered with him, so you will be glorified together with him. This teaching ultimately pushes you to affirm the beauty and power of resurrection life that conforms a church to the suffering and death and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so I always tell uh, those who are listening to a- approach heavenly mindedness in Vossian terms in light of the usefulness of the cross that Dr. Gaffin taught us so well about in his inaugural address. So our lives are, are cruciform and yet filled with joy as we reflect upon these things. Yes, and the beautiful thing about union with Christ is that the deepest structural strand of union is not the suffering and the tribulation, but the glory and the comfort and the joy. That's what abides when the age of suffering gives way to the age of glory. And so for a little while, we suffer grief and all kinds of afflictions, persecution, opposition, hardship, but that is not the deepest, nor is it the final designation of the church's identity, because through those sufferings, we live with Christ and are being glorified with Christ and will be ultimately liberated from all suffering. Well, it's always a joy to talk to our friend, uh, Lane Tipton, and we both, I think James looked at each other and, and kind of wished we could have had a little more time on the line, but uh, always it's exciting. And you said something I think that is good for us to pass along to our listeners for as good as it is to talk with him on the phone or to hear him on a podcast. It's even better to, to watch him in person, sort of in his element. And you can do that by uh, going to reformedforum.org. They have a store page. And on that store page, you can get Foundations of Covenant Theology, this video series. And uh, we were talking and James, you said you already knew of people who were using it as Sunday school curriculum. I think it would right. be well suited to that. It's very nicely produced. And uh, so you can go to reformforum.org, Foundations of Covenant Theology, add that to your cart. It's very straightforward and easy to do. We'd also like to offer you the opportunity to win a copy of that video curriculum. You can go to placefortruth.org and click on the Theology on the Go link, enter your name, and we'll give you the opportunity to to win a giveaway of that. Thanks, as always, for listening to us. We really appreciate our listeners. We appreciate hearing from you. We appreciate those of you who are able to donate. You can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. We thank you for those of you who rate and, and, and review the podcast on iTunes, for those of you who recommend it to others. So we're grateful for you, and thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.